Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Good to see you, Matt and Matt. Everybody okay? Doing well, thanks, Paul. How's your eye doing, Matt? It's doing, it's doing better, thank God. Thank you for your prayers. I've been worrying about you. Maybe I just worry about you all the time, Matt. It doesn't matter. I just worry. Well, I guess that's what a spiritual father does, <laughs> when he's, especially when he has a spiritual son like me. Uh, <laughs> Not at all, no. Probably, probably cause for a lot of worry, but fabric of human society seems to be coming apart at the seams at the same time that kind of it can be overwhelming so i'm glad that we have a you know a group like this where you can kind of think about better things you know my my wife worked for years in the mental health field and so it was actually a side of moberly we had never seen but she you know it's just uh kind of shocking we're it's a fairly small little town here the number of people with mental health issues i mean it's a good percentage of them and the mental health issues that come to this their lives are a mess you know all right brian you're here twice either that or your twin came and you guys are identical i have to admit david good to see you everything going smooth smooth as can be okay been such a hard week this week i've had somebody buy me breakfast the last two days in a row and i got taken to lunch so oh, i'm just yeah. struggling you know oh yeah yeah <laughs> i said i'm gonna need to get some more exercise if that keeps up you know faith and i started walking every morning i think that's that's been helping and uh, we're up to two and a half miles now oh wow that's good yeah uh i walk bare every morning but that doesn't really get me very much exercise yeah <laughs> close the pool for a couple, maybe three weeks now, so I haven't been swimming, but I still play racquetball every week. Once That's a week. good. Hey, you know, I'm reading somebody now that I, I would think that you might actually really res- like what this guy's saying. He's a Roman Catholic priest. His story, he was ordained secretly. He's a Czech. He was ordained secretly during the communist regime. His mother didn't even know he was a priest. Oh, uh, wow. But a lot, and so he's also a sociologist, but a lot of his work... He's doing philosophical theology, but a lot of his work is centering on how do you witness in the secular age, and it's the response. The way he comes at a lot of these questions are pretty fascinating. I think he's had a he has had at least one kind of interaction with Charles Taylor, but where they're talking on a panel with each other. But his stuff is. Um, it's good. Is it a philosophical theology or well, that's his background. Now, not all of his works, I mean, he has written on that kind of stuff, but not all of it's translated from Czech. You know, he's he's pointing out basically how to navigate and welcome the fact that the Enlightenment sort of cultural Christianity has come to an end, but how to welcome that in a context where most Christians see that as a good still see they see that as a bad thing or want to hang on to that model so how can you work within that milu and um he so he's interacting with people like 
Oh, I know. Nicholas Lash. He was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Nicholas Lash. That's where yeah, the yeah. was that I was thinking. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I always Red liked Bart, Nicholas Lash. You know, he's Red Bart. I think Nicholas Lash was one of the first Roman Catholic theologians to read all of Bart, but he's doing stuff with Tehard de Chardin and Bonhoeffer and Rahner and Balthazar, but all in different sort of ways. His name is Tomash Halik. Okay. All right. Oh. Good to see you, Jeff. Nice to see you guys. Did you get through uh, Beyond uh justification not yet no nope. <laughs> that was Matt, very very kind of him to send that out yeah yeah i thought it was he's i've read through a lot of it because just the size of it will make it more accessible well there's a few things and i may just not have read them in campbell though i think campbell has done that they lay out the project of nt right mm. and explain its limitations and actually, I found that I've I've always found N.T. Wright confusing. I've mm -hmm. used his stuff and I've liked his stuff, but I can't say that I could have nailed the project. They do that very nicely. Mm, nice. And the other thing is they, uh, well, they go through Sanders and uh, uh, James Dunn. And again, okay. there is a, obviously a partial agreement, but then showing the limitations and, in fact, questioning whether in other words i think all of these people are running up against justification theory mm -hmm. or romans 1 18 to 32 in particular i don't think that any of them have succeeded consistently to resolve the problem so mm -hmm. uh, have you read the uh there was a book of essays that came out a few years after um deliverance of god came out uh i i just ran across it because it has the Torrance, the James Torrance essays that uh, Douglas Campbell sort of mentions in brief at the beginning. Um, but there were a bunch oh. of responses to to Deliverance of God. And then I think Douglas Campbell interacts with them. I can't remember what the name of the book is, but. Uh, no, I haven't seen the, that one. Matt and John and I interviewed him for another book that I think is more popular. My, my goal tonight, we're at kind of the middle part of the class. And so I was hoping to meld together the the project as a whole. I think some of the things that, that I'm doing, and I don't know that it makes a, um, it's not a huge difference, but I think there is a different emphasis in uh, the focus that I put in Romans 7. The first thing, I don't know if any of you were able to listen to the lecture this week, and that is I go through the mistranslation of Augustine in on Romans 5.12. He has the idea that all have sinned in Adam. I think that makes a huge difference in, uh, you know, he actually comes up with a theology that will make sense of that. This is Augustine. He says, nothing remains but to conclude that in the first man, all are understood to have sinned. He's not speaking allegorically. He's not speaking allegorically. Now, he's speaking mystically, because I don't think, it, how, do, how can that be true? Even in his own attempt to explain it. You know, both Augustine and Calvin will kind of, they'll talk about it as a mystery. Augustine uh, links it to sexual passion which is fairly typical, I guess, so that we get kind of a degraded view of the body and of human sexuality. But the basic point is everyone is born guilty 
and damned in the eyes of God. And because they're guilty and damned, or because all have sinned, death then spread to everyone. And that reflects the misunderstanding, I think. And Matt Welch, you can speak to this, but I think this is the huge difference between the Eastern and the Western Church. For those who've done nothing, you know, infants, upon conception, they're, they're already guilty, and it is as if they sinned. What I would argue is that this reverses cause and effect in Paul's explanation, so that instead of death spreading to all and giving rise to sin, sin is made the cause of death, which, of course, in the first instance, with Adam and Eve, and that that is the case, what Paul is reflecting in, in Romans 5 is that death reigns, and because death reigns, then sin reigns. Sin reigns through death. This mistranslation makes nonsense, or this misinterpretation, of what I think Paul is doing in the book of Romans. But maybe this mistranslation fits nicely, then, with the rest of the misunderstanding that we have, in the Western Church, anyway. Sin's propagation, first of all, it's a mystery. I think that once we say that death reigns, the reign of death uh, spread and uh, not vice versa, we can understand, you know, how it is that sin is an orientation to death. I mean, it's really not a shocking thing that human mortality, human finitude, this is certainly where the psychoanalytic material enters in. But, you know, just, I think, just our own observation of what the law does or of what in in each instance it's taking finitude and absolutizing it or in some way a kind of we might call it a death denial but in in romans 5 the picture is verse 12 death spread to all men verse 14 death reigned the many died verse 15 verse 17 death reigned through the one Verse 21, sin reigned in death. And Paul concludes there, that's really the conclusion, that sin reigns in death, not the other way around. And so this is the explanation for the propagation and work of sin. Obviously, then, this is going to give us a different picture of salvation. And I think that's what Paul is doing in Romans. The pairs... Death and life are actually uh, the poles of sin and salvation. And so original sin, I think, directly contradicts what Paul says in verse 14. Death reigned. In other words, even if we didn't get the mistranslation, I think this should have corrected it. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned in the manner of Adam. I don't know quite what that means, but apparently not everybody sinned, and yet death reigns. And of course, I think what he, we could think of all kinds of classes of people, including Paul's explanation in Romans 7, that apparently there was a time in which there was no sin. And then he encounters the law, there is a uh, an entry into sin, either a, as a child or we don't, you know, he doesn't specify. 
And so there, there are those who have not sinned, and there is no concept for Paul of everyone sinning in Adam before they exist. But certainly death reigns, and you don't need the Bible to see that. Matt can tell us all about it, and Brian too. You guys are working in hospice. And so I think this then gives us the ground for ex uh, the explanation. First of all, I think this explains beginning in chapter 4, but certainly 5, 6, 7, and 8, what is happening, that there is a picture of a struggle for existence, for life, in the face of death. In chapter 4, Abraham is depicted as relinquishing the struggle, though he is as good as death, and Sarah is, you know, her womb is dead. Nonetheless, they believed in God, and Paul sums this up, that this is resurrection faith. And of course, I don't know if you've read this part in Campbell, but again, the significance here is that Paul, and I, I hold on to this thought because here in a minute, I'm going to reference Daniel Boyeran and Galatians and the pa passage in Galatians that talks about the curse of the law. And we'll, we'll get at what the curse of the law is. Uh, we can approach it through understanding that what Paul is doing in the Old Testament is showing that the Old Testament is more than doing works of the law, okay? That faith then proceeds. We, this becomes clearer in the case. We did, we did Abraham, that, that, that how it is that the birth of Isaac and his faith in that is resurrection faith. So I think part of the problem in justification theory is also that we've been so inundated with notions of an original guilt equated with sin that it's obscured the open and obvious explanation of sin as an orientation to death. That's my way of saying it. I, you could say this in any number of ways. Sin is an orientation to the law. Sin is, an, you know, however you want to say it. But I think that's a way of summing up what Paul is doing. Sin reigns in death, and not simply because people are mortal or, or because they're guilty, but because sin arises in conjunction with death in which people deceive themselves into believing they can have life within themselves. Life in and through, you know, in Romans 7, the I or the law. And if we think of contrasting as William Fraser does, chapter 12 with chapter 11, you know, maybe that's the original picture of religion and society is at Babel, they thought they could have life in and through the tower or in and through being Babelites. And, and a passage that Paul will use quite often is in Isaiah 28, 15, the covenant with death, right? If you go and read the whole chapter of Isaiah 28, it's a very, it's a strange chapter, and I'm not quite sure what the first part of that chapter is, but apparently it's all about law-keeping, do and do, rule upon rule. And then the picture is they vomit, and they're the whole, you know, it's a kind of an obscene picture, and that they these people have entered into a covenant with death, and then the stone of stumbling has annulled the covenant with death. Paul is picturing Christ, Christ's resolution of the sin problem, as an annulment with the covenant with death. 
the irony of sin is that it is a taking up of death, a living under death, under the auspices of having life. And I think this is what Paul means. You know, Paul is referencing Genesis 3 in his depiction in Romans 7, 7, that sin deceived me in regard to the law, that it held out life, thinking that it contained life, it actually killed me. Now, however you want to explain the mechanics of that, I think what he's describing is what happens in Genesis 3 with the fall, but I think he also means this is what happens to every good Jew with the Torah, but I would say it's in Adam, it's in the Jews, it's in all people that he's describing the universal human predicament as entry into a covenant with death, and in that covenant with death, we take the thing that kills us as if it gives life. Uh, in the case of Adam and Eve, they thought the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would give them life, and that it's still, they're still dealing with the law, it's just the other side of the law. And so how Paul views, we can understand that to imagine that there is life in the law is not to say that there's a problem with the law, but it is to imagine that uh, there is a, a means of immortality. And this then, this reification of the law, but again, we've talked about the law as the symbolic order, that there's life in the symbolic order, that just describes, I think, the human predicament. And so for Paul, for all under Adam, those in Christ, are offered two alternative identities, the only two. And I think we can talk about this ontologically, that they are ontological poles apart in regard to life and death. That is, in Christ, there is life. And this life really is a different sort of thing. Death reigned through the first Adam, and life through the second Adam is the way that Paul puts it in Romans 5. Sin follows the reign of death, and righteousness follows the reign of life. And of course, it's unconditional, but it is a similar sort of cause and effect relationship. That is, the transgression of Adam resulted in death for all, but the one act of righteousness resulted in life for all people, 518, very similar passage in 839. And so rather than sin being accessible to explanation in Augustinianism, and I think even in, in, in justification in theory in general, it's obscured. And so Ignatius, Irenaeus, Basil, Athanasius, and I think we could just say the Greek fathers as a whole. This is according to John Romanides. They look upon salvation as first and foremost redemption from death, and death is the problem. And in the early church and Eastern tradition, death and not sin is definitive and primary in describing the human predicament. And I think, you know, in the West, we would say sin is primary and precedes death in terms of cause and effect. I think that's exactly contrary to what Paul is describing. That is, the biblical portrayal is that the reign of death is the cause of sin, and this has been rendered obscure by original sin, or 
original sin is not, you know, Augustinian original sin anyway. And where this presumption can be set aside, that it is death in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that is the last enemy. Death and Hades are the, the, you know, the place of the dead, the last thing in Revelation to be thrown into the lake of fire. And Paul's primary thing is that which he needs rescue from in Romans is this body of death. Sin, then, and we've done this, we can, I can give you a test at the end. You know, what does the passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 say? Does it say, death is the sting of sin, or sin is the sting or result of death? I think we misread this passage very often, uh, that we often picture death as resulting from sin, but actually it's saying death is not the sting of sin, but it's the other way around. The problem is not that sin reigns and then comes death, but death reigns. That's step one. Hebrews 2 says it well too in uh, verse 14 and 15, where the fear of death makes the subject to slavery. The children of that he might yeah. feed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Yeah, yeah, and Ro Paul does the same thing in Romans. I think that's a very Pauline idea in Hebrews that it's the, the fear of death that we're that enslaves us. Yeah, and that caught, gives rise to sin. The conclusion here: we're spelling out an alternative understanding of sin and salvation. I think we could just say that what we're doing is we're, we're spelling, and maybe this is too big. I think that in as much as justification theory can be identified with Protestantism, we are spelling out at least an alternative to much of Protestantism. And original sin, then, is at once too optimistic. In other words, in original sin, you can still read Romans 1, 18 to 32, you can still have great optimism about human capacity, but a complete pessimism about human capacity of will. And as we've talked about, I think this is a fusion of the false teacher or with a Galatians-like Judaizing teacher being fused with Paul. And so if we look at the rest of Romans, beginning with chapter 5 and 8, uh, the human predicament from the rest of Romans, I think, is much worse than is portrayed in one eighteen to thirty-two. You know, in the in that passage, people know God; they know what they should do; they know should they should keep the law; they don't do it. But even in that, there is the imply the implication is if they had kept the law, they would have had no problem. When we get down, I'm going to do the Galatians passage. When we get there, you know, what is the curse of the law? I think actually I've just said what the curse of the law is. And that is that people imagine that in doing the law, that they've achieved justification or salvation. In the rest of Romans, Paul describes people in 8, you know, 8, 15 to 16. He says they're in bondage. In chapter 7, they've been enslaved by a lie. And I, I read chapter 7 as being corporate and universal. In 8-7, he says they are hostile to God, and he says they really have no choice. They're hostile to God, and that's all they can do. In 5-14, you know, in the depiction of the two Adams, death reigns 
for the in the first Adam. And I think in Paul's depiction, we can put that together, that death is not simply mortality in the literal sense, but life is ordered according to that reality, as in the passage, Brian, that you pointed out, through because of the fear of death, or because we take up those things that are deadly, imagining that they give life. This is Jesus, you know, he who would save his life loses it. And so people attempt to do this through the law. And I believe that's really what's happening. I believe this is why Paul writes this letter. Because through the law, 118 to 221, you know, at least that section. And I think the law and the flesh can be equated in Paul. If we go to the passage in Galatians 4.3, he's using a slightly different language but I think it, 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 in Galatians, but I think it's enlightening the way that he's using the picture of the principles of the cosmos, that in and through these principles. And Paul is going to reduce all of these things, the flesh, the law, the principles of the cosmos, circumcision, and idolatry. He's going to equate them, which is quite interesting. And so the law, you know, what the way that we've set up the law and justification theory is to say, well, we can't keep it, but Christ can. He, he does the law. He pays the penalty. But the law in Paul is deadly. And it's deadly in the same way and exactly the same thing as the flesh is deadly. And in fact, in circumcision, it is precisely that you imagine you are justified through the flesh, through that little piece of flesh at the end of the penis, to be precise. You are justified, quite literally justified through the flesh. And so people imagine through law or religion, through the covenant with death, that they can defeat death or that there's a kind of death denial. And the passage that Paul, in chapter 9, in which he references Isaiah 28. You know, the passage in Isaiah is actually death reneges on the deal. People thought they had done a deal with death, and then they're, they're, they're uh, destroyed. The stumbling stone, which is a messianic reference, who undoes the covenant with death. And that's Paul's reference in 932. And so the human arrangement with death... I think kind of, you know, the covenant with death. I think this sums up the problem with the law, the problem with the flesh, the problem with the elementary principles. Or as Paul will call it in 8.2, he just calls it the law of sin and death. And it deals only in death. You know, it's founded on the econ an economy of death. And so 118 to 32 pictures a kind of universal capacity to recognize God, to recognize righteousness and the law but i think it turns out at, certainly in the rest of romans and the rest of paul that he is not so optimistic about people even being able to comprehend the problem and of course part of this is dependent on our reading of romans 7 and how we read that and my reading of that campbell agrees with this many people do that actually what is being described there Paul, as a non-Christian, was not conscious of that 
understanding of who he was, if that's a description of him, or that understanding of the sin problem. And we know that from passages like Philippians, in which he describes having a per perfectly clear conscience and being perfect or blameless in regard to the law. And so Paul is picturing a deluded humanity. Uh, there has been a deadly exchange that has taken place corporately in chapter 5, individually in, you know, in the human psyche, maybe unconsciously in chapter 7, really the, the first four chapters, but especially chapter 4, Paul is explaining how the perceived solution, the law, is bound up with the problem. But that's always our problem. We always misperceive the solution. And so inasmuch as justification theory repeats that pattern, it repeats the human predicament. It just is more of the same. There is a deception in regard to the law through which death takes hold of us. And I think we can, you know, this sounds kind of ambiguous, but I think there's no ambiguity here. What does that mean? Well, it looks like what the guy in Romans 7, 7 looks like. It looks like someone who is over and against themselves. They're violent. They're agonistic. They're antagonistic. And there's no escape other than the gospel. And God has, that is, I think that God, and that's what Paul is saying in Romans 5, that God has provided a solution, a resolution to the human predicament. But because the problem has been mis misunderstood, in part due to false teaching, then the solution is now misunderstood and obscured. And thus, Paul is writing the letter of Romans. That is, we're giving a new introduction to the book of Rome uh, as to why he wrote it. And so Paul is going to explain the problem in light of the solution, and I don't think he pictures that we have access to the problem apart from the solution. This is where Douglas Campbell's at. He, he says about Romans 7, essentially it supplies a theological analysis of non-Christian ontology, whether that is present in the non-Christian, as seems obvious to the Christian, or in the Christian, as seems at least partly to be the case on the this side of the end of the age. Hence, it is fundamentally retrospective. This is Paul, as a Christian, reflecting back on what that experience of being outside of Christ was like. And the result, this is still Campbell, is of a vantage point only available in Christ, which supplies the key theological categories and insights for constructing it. Campbell is, you know, actually you can do whatever you want with Romans 7, according to Campbell. Okay, uh, but it's the same. You know, obviously this is not the ideal Christian life that is being described. And I think he more or less agrees that this is what it's like to be outside of Christ. We may, we all, I think we all kind of uh, are familiar with what Romans 7, 7, what that feels like. But that's not supposed to be what the Christian life is, the experience is supposed to be. And so actually, we're describing something, I think, in chapter 7 that is fairly complicated, 
And partly the complication is because this isn't justification theory. It's not legalism. It's not Judaism that is being described. And of course, that's Campbell's point throughout. We're not talking about Judaism per se. Judaism per se is not the problem. Though Paul talks about the law of Moses, that the Torah creates the same problem in those places where he is specifically referencing Mosaic law. And so the reality of the human predicament revolves around the law. Is that true? I think, no, that's the problem. This perception itself in Paul's description misses how it is that sin has deceived in regard to the law. The law is not really the problem, but sin in regard to the law. The, the law is holy, just, and good. And now I'll make my grand statement. Inasmuch as Protestantism in justification theory is implicated in this understanding of the law, and so too, I think, uh, that Protestantism, justification theory, the problem and solution are thought to be defined by the law, well, they've committed the same error. That's the error that I think Paul is talking about. So if we go to Genesis 3, and just think about Genesis 3, what's actually happening there? Because I think that's the material Paul is working with. It is not the command, you know, thou shalt not eat, you know, that is problematic. But what Paul is saying, due to the lie of sin, and of course, when Paul uses the word sin in Romans 7, everything that sin does in Romans 7, the serpent does in Genesis 3. The presumption is that the command through the lie of the serpent is a kind of backdoor to life. And this is what Paul says in 7, 10 to 11. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. That's the universal human problem. I think he's taking the Genesis story and saying what happened there is the predicament in which we still find ourselves. And if that reading is correct, I think our primary problem, or at least a significant part of our problem, is we've believed a lot. We've fallen under deception. And we could talk about that deception in many ways. You know, how, how does that deception work? Maybe the, even the deception or our experience of the deception is not a conscious experience, but it is tied up very much in desire so that the very experience of desire is already deceived, that just the very nature of human experience is based on this law, whether we go through the process of the consciously. But clearly, Paul is not describing a slowly dawning awareness in the struggle to keep the law, and then the realized or recognized inability to do so. That's not the problem. He is describing the deception, I think, as it occurred in Genesis. Most commentators agree. Romans 7, 7 is about Genesis. Somebody like N.T. Wright says it's both Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, and the giving of the law at Sinai. Of course, Wright wants to work Exodus, the law, and everything. And I think maybe it is. I don't think it matters. 
but he's describing the deception as it occurred in Genesis as it, uh, as it continues to reign. This is not someone who has deep cognitive awareness of their sin problem. This person is deceived, controlled by the flesh. You know, this is 7-5, seven, 7-7. Seven, seven. They're serving the desire of the flesh. The individual is controlled by death. And so I think what Paul is doing in chapter 7 is providing a commentary on the account that he gave in chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, of how it is that death came to reign and what this looks like. That is, here's the dynamics of the reign of death in the human race and in the individual, in the psyche of the human individual. I'm going to turn to Daniel Boyer in here if nobody has... Are you all familiar with Daniel Boyerin? He's a Jewish writer and thinker who has written extensively on the Apostle Paul, and and has obviously in the end he's not a uh, you know he's not a Christian, but as a Jew I think he has deep insight into Paul and he treats Paul in a very fair way. And Boyerin is also reading Hayes and Wright and others, and so in Galatians three ten. You know, the way that we often read this passage, it is not a matter that no one can keep the law. This is the way we usually read it. You know, they can't keep the law, and therefore they're not justified. Borean notes, a better understanding is not to imagine there is a problem with the doing of the law. And most Jews, he argues, like Paul, the Pharisee, assumed that they could keep the law. In other words, doing the law was not really a problem. The, pro the, the law had all sorts of provisions. The law had provisions for forgiveness and failure. It's not like anybody thought they were perfect. It's just that doing the law never demanded perfection. And that's not what doing the law here must mean. The problem is not that it cannot be done. The problem is imagining that the doing is the main thing. Here's Boyerin. We could rewrite the verse then as everyone who precisely by doing it does not uphold it. All that is written in the book of the law, they are under a curse, i.e., by doing it, by physical performance, works of the law, one is not upholding all that which is written in the book of the law, and that is the curse because all that is written implies much more than mere doing. And I think this is what Paul is arguing in chapter 4. It is faith that precedes the doing of the law, and he makes this argument on the basis of the law, from within the law. It can be extrapolated. We maintain, he says, that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's his argument about the experience of Abraham through the eyes of a Christian. You know, obviously, he's using Christ there. The law points beyond itself to Christ. And so Boya maintains, it follows from this that those who live by faith are the righteous, i.e. the justified. And he then argues that those who live by the law do not live by faith. Because the doing of the law you know, and the reference here is the Levit Leviticus passage. He who does them lives by them. 
i.e., one who does the commandments lives by them and not by faith. And Paul is referencing both the Leviticus passage and the passage that he uses in Romans from Habakkuk, that the righteous live by faith. He who lives by them and not by faith, thereby does not fulfill the law, is not righteous, is not justified. And so Boyer argues that this is would be familiar to the rabbis and the Pharisees. This is Boyer. Paul is using methods of interpretation that would not surprise any Pharisee, I suspect, or rabbi, although the results he arrives at would, of course, shock them to their depths. And that's the sense. The law is a curse if the doing of it or the having it is thought to be adequate and go back, you know, to the argument in the first three chapters. Think of the argument as we have it. What advantage, you know, is, uh, well, do we have the law? The way that we've usually interpreted that is as if that is Paul. But what Campbell is saying, that's not Paul. That's the Judaizing false teacher who imagines that the law conveys, you know, just the having of it, the circumcision in particular, conveys righteousness or or puts Jews at advantage. Campbell says a very similar thing. The curse's basis is actually life in Christ, a life of freedom, adulthood, inheritance, and the spirit. In comparison with this life, Judaism under the law is confined, immature, harsh, and oppressed, and all hence also cursed. It is the life for which Christians have been purchased. I kind of like that. And I think the two things, Boyer and, and Campbell, kind of segue into the same thing. And that is the law, nothing wrong, you know, per se with the law. And, and again, we've spread out the word law. I think we could just go through and say there's nothing wrong with the symbolic order is we have it. There's nothing wrong with culture per se. There's nothing wrong with language per se. But it could, but our orientation to that is the problem. And the law then does not produce resurrection faith. But Paul's argument, it is based on resurrection faith. The whole law flows out of the experience of Abraham. So in short, by acknowledging the crucified and resurrected Christ, this is Campbell, and relying on him for deliverance, a deliverance that is already in some sense inaugurated, Paul observes that Jewish Christians have automatically displaced law observance from a critical saving and transformational role. I don't think Paul's worried about whether people do, you know, whether they're circumcised or, you know, he, he's willing to, uh, in as much as that's a cultural understanding. The argument, it is not, it does not play a critical role. I think in justification theory, the law still plays a critical role. And in this explanation, there's no room for works of the law, even in the anteroom to faith. That is, we don't progress through works of the law. We, you know, we're in despair because we can't do it, and then we come to Christ. So I think Galatians is, is an interesting comparison 
to Romans, I think it's exactly the same argument. It describes, and actually the, the, the verse in Galatians 2.15, you could be quoting Romans, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. That's not the basis of judgment. This is Campbell, because transformation comes through the Christ event. Works of the law have been negated, at least in relation to transformation, along with any subsequent construction of their importance. You guys are awfully quiet tonight. I, I thought you'd be saying, wait a minute, that can't be right. Good news, Paul. We have to, we have to hold on to it. <laughs> okay. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org.